You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you are back from your fabulous cross-country ski vacation. That's right. How was that? It was fantastic. How was the snow? Because uh, we don't have a lot of snow down here in uh, in the Missoula area. Well, you just keep driving up towards Canada, my man, and you find that you run into some snow. Okay. It wasn't a ton of snow, but there was plenty for what we wanted to do. Get out there, ski around a little bit, put my kids on a sled and just threw them down a hill over and over again and had fun in a cabin, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. Glad to hear it. You would recommend it? I would recommend it. I don't know. Uh, I know other people, cross-country skiing, not everybody's kind of thing, but something about getting out there, you, you just kind of like ski into the woods until there's nobody else around and it's nice and quiet. And you just feel your hate for humanity just kind of melting away. Clear your head. Yeah. And then I come back down and then I, my hate for humanity just returns. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you'd say that it's fully back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been back since yesterday afternoon. So plenty of time to think about how much I hate all of you people. Yeah. Let's see if I can pull out my visual aid here for the people watching the live stream. Don't forget, you guys, less than a month now to pre-order The Blaze. Uh, in hardcover. It's my book. It's a thriller. It's a mystery. I think you're going to like it. It comes out January 21st. Uh, but you shouldn't wait. Go online right now, wherever fine books are sold, and order up The Blaze. Then you'll get it in the mail the day that it comes out. It'll be like you got yourself a present. It'll Show be exactly that. like that. Uh, by the way, if you live in the cities, Portland, Oregon, Houston, Texas, or Phoenix, Arizona, I'm coming to see you guys. In January. See, this is the same thing that happened last time when you put a book out and you came, you went on a little like mini book tour. Yeah. And it always seemed like such a, a strange mix. Like last time you went to like Michigan somewhere. Yep. yep. You went a couple places in Montana. Like why is it always end up being just like a couple weird cities and not like a like a sweep that kind of makes sense? That's a great question. I don't ask those kind of questions when they tell me where I'm going. I just say, send me the tickets. I know that you uh, need to get on the phone to Tom Penguin and and sort this stuff out because I have a lot of issues with how this book is being published. In in Phoenix and Houston, there are mystery dedicated bookshops. Okay, so I'll be reading at those. Uh, get you guys more information about that as we as it gets closer to the dates. Uh, so I think that's why Phoenix and Houston are on the docket, and then the following week I'll be doing three more dates here in Montana. But dates. the majority of the people out there listening to the podcast going to be interested in the Portland, Phoenix, and Houston leg of the tour. I'm just imagining you out there on the road like a pro wrestler. Oh, yeah. Just hold up at the the Motel 6, uh, drinking hard, reading the Bible, and uh, then packing into a car to you and Bret Hart going 16 hours to Calgary the next night. I would describe my lifestyle on the road as being pretty close to what uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper would have done during the 80s. Okay. You know, you got to take a uh, little bit of cocaine to get up in the morning. Yeah. Then you drink a couple beers to come down. Then you got to do a little bit more cocaine when it gets close to match time, gets close to show time. Then you got to do some barbiturates in order to go to sleep. Then you wake up early for your flight the next morning. You got to do a little bit more cocaine, right? Come on. 
The who, Silent Scream, who they you, call it. Who are you kidding? No, I'm not doing that, but I might watch some HBO in my hotel rooms. Fancy. All right, well, here's what we're doing this week. All questions considered. Since we're coming back uh, after a little bit of a holiday break, there hasn't been a ton of MMA action, although we got into the split Ryzen Bellator card over the weekend. We didn't think it would lend itself to uh, our normal three-round format. So what we're going to do today is all questions considered. We got a bunch of good questions from you, the listeners. So we're going to go through as many of those as we can here in the next 60 or so minutes. Hopefully talk about all the stuff that happened at Bellator uh, and some other odds and ends from the MMA world. And then uh, we'll start looking ahead, I think, to uh, Conor McGregor and Don Cerrone. Is that the first UFC card of 2020? I believe so, right? And it's not until, like, it's kind of like mid-January. So we got a little time. We got a little bit of time to get used to the idea. Maybe pace ourselves. How about that? Of that event. Here's where we're going to start, though. Okay. Andrew Crayer writes to the podcast, Was Rampage slash Fedor anything more than a throwaway throwback? Okay. Imagine we're going to end up talking a lot about Rampage and Fedor for... All two plus minutes of whatever action they gave us. There was some, let's say, discussion topics that might have come out of this one. My first thought being this. Remember when Rampage was on the conference call with King Mo before their fight and made reference to them fighting, how they're fighting at a catchweight? Yeah. And King Mo was like, no, bro, this is not a catchweight. It's heavyweight, dog. I don't do catchweights. And Rampage was like, hold on. You're saying I could weigh as much as I want? I could weigh 265? And Mo was like, yes, man. It's heavyweight. You can weigh. And it was clear that Rampage had been hoodwinked, bamboozled even, yeah. led down a garden path by his own trainers who had got him to believe that he needed to weigh under a certain amount. And it's not that hard to imagine why they might want to do that. This is what happens when you don't do that. He shows up looking as... Uh, Journalist of the Year Suzanne Davis described him as Rampage Snackson. Just jiggly as all fuck. Yeah. 265 pounds. Came in right at the heavyweight limit. When I saw that at the official (laughs) weigh-ins, that's when I knew we were in trouble here. Also, you know what else? Uh, Heavyweight weigh-in where everybody keeps their shirts on like they did for (laughs) this one. Like kids at the swimming pool. Yeah. That's when you know, okay, there's some issues here. Um, I would love to have been a fly on the wall during training camp. What there was of the training camp for Rampage. Because you remember when Mike Dolce was talking about his time working with Rampage and how it was very difficult to get him to stick to a diet plan. And they were, I think, like up in Big Bear. Like they were kind of isolated in a mountain training camp. And he was still like, you couldn't let him run into the gas station mini mart by himself. <laughs> because the next thing you know, you're finding chocolate bar wrappers under his pillow. Yeah. And he he took some heat from Rampage for talking about that afterwards. But now when you see Rampage at this stage of his career where, I don't know if it's just that the stakes aren't high enough anymore or that he doesn't care enough anymore, but... He clearly is not putting in really hard training camps, and it seems like if you're going to be the guy who's hanging around in Rampage Jackson's entourage in his orbit, you have to be the kind of guy who's going to let him slide on some of that stuff. Otherwise, you would have been gone one way or another. Yeah. I mean, at this point, Quentin Rampage Jackson is 41 years old. This is his first fight since September 2018. He is now 1-3 in in his last four. The only victory there. A TKO against Vanderlei Silva at Bellator 206. The losses 
uh, this first round KO to Fedor Emelianenko, and then of course Chael Sonnen and Mohamed Lawal, who you mentioned earlier, previous to that. You know, I don't know that you would ever say, even at his at his height, that Rampage was a guy that we looked at and were like, okay, well this guy seems very dedicated to this. Yeah, no, he was not even kidding anybody about that. He made it clear he did not love training. Yeah, he did. He definitely did not love sticking to a diet. He did all that stuff because he had to, and at times he did it very, very reluctantly. And he's not going to get any more dedicated the older that he gets and the further he gets away from the center of the MMA world because this was a guy that was UFC light heavyweight champion at one point in his career. And so now that he is 41 years old and fighting once every 14 months-ish, coming back to fight a 43-year-old Fedor Emelianenko in the main event of this uh, Japan card, which has got to feel a little bit like a, a class reunion for these guys. Yeah, You're back at Saitama Super Arena. Uh, headline in a card against your old buddy, Fedor Emelianenko. You're back in your old haunts, maybe, and you're remembering all the great places you used to love to go to eat when you were in Tokyo. I mean, if you were going to make a charge that there was a fight that two guys would take for the paycheck, this is basically that fight, right? A couple of early 40s guys going back to where they used to be super famous, fighting each other uh, in about the doesn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things in mixed martial arts, except that perhaps it is the kickoff of the quote-unquote Fedor Emelianenko retirement tour. So The kickoff or the the wind down? Is this the climax? Well, this is it for him in Bellator, right? Is this his last Bellator fight? I don't know. I saw Scott Coker said something about like, ending, like the end of Fedor's Bellator chapter or something. Okay, right? so maybe he's going to move on, go fight a couple more... Uh, Fabio well, Maldonado-type individuals that's over the other there question in the, in is the like, wilds of Russia. Is something like this the worst thing that can happen for Fedor right now? Well, I mean, I said to you before we went on the air, it turns out if you want to make 43-year-old Fedor Emelianenko look like a million bucks, put him out there against 41-year-old Quentin Rampage Jackson, because Fedor looked very capable in he, this fight. He looked like old Fedor. He's bouncing on his toe, got his hands light and ready. Yeah, he had pretty fast hands, as the uh, commentating duo alluded to a couple of times, throwing that uppercut, throwing some kicks. Which, you know, we don't necessarily think of, K- of Fedor as like a titanic kicker, but he like blasted Rampage with a with a body kick, threw a couple of kind of nasty looking low kicks, and then ultimately uh, knocks him out two minutes and 44 seconds into the first round. So maybe it was just, it was relative? Yes, it's all relative. It's yeah. all relative, but like, you know, Fedor Emelianenko looked good in this fight. Rampage Jackson looked listless, did not do much, ultimately got knocked out. What did you think about the end of this fight? Like, I saw that there were some, you know, there's always going to be some conspiracies yeah. going on. Especially in Japan. Uh, people are going to be online crafting some conspiracies, making various allegations. The, the the punch that knocks out Rampage Jackson here appeared to be a bit of a glancing blow to me. Although I do think that he got caught kind of right in the temple area. Uh, and clearly didn't get knocked out cold. Just kind of got knocked down uh, knocked into a space where he didn't want to continue. But uh, anytime anything like that happens, especially when you've got old guys, especially when you're in Japan, people are going to get online and start making accusations. I didn't necessarily see anything that fishy about this, aside from the fact that you got, you know, 41-year-old, not all that dedicated Rampage Jackson to come uh, give Fedor a couple of good minutes out there in the cage. Uh it didn't surprise me that Quentin Rampage Jackson would not want to go too much farther after the first really significant shot uh, to the dome there, but I don't know if I saw 
anything untoward happening out there. Well, first of all, it was an interesting experience to learn about this fight and the reactions to it while I was away on my ski trip because they were staying in a little cabin like there's no Wi-Fi or internet there or uh, phone reception or anything. If you go to the lodge, like to get dinner or something, then there's Wi-Fi, but it's not great Wi-Fi. So I was able to log on to Twitter and see a bunch of people's reaction to this fight and included stuff like I remember seeing like Dave Doyle being like, Rampage should feel embarrassed to cash his check after this fight. Suzanne Davis talking about Rampage snacks and stuff like that. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I was like, uh-oh. What happened here? Did not go well. But then I couldn't get the video to work. And so it was just, it was like tantalizingly close to beginning working. And yet I had to wait home until I got home to get. And then when I, by the time I got home, maybe I was prepared for something worse. And instead, seeing them get clipped once and then go face first down on the mat. And they stopped it because he was not in a position to defend himself against follow up attacks at that point. So that was the right time to stop it. And then afterwards, just looking a little disoriented. And it was cut open, you know, and everything. But I saw him responding, like, on social media to be like, hey, that was not a fix. Anybody thinks it is needs to shut up or something. And it was like, I don't know. Well, I hadn't heard many people calling it a fix until then. And yeah. then, But I don't think it was. Like, people think that fixes are way more common in fight sports. And they think maybe that they look different than they actually do. Like, when we have seen fights where afterwards it has been confirmed or at least strongly suspected that it was a fix, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Like, people are not as good at it as you think they're going to be. And why would you need to fix this fight? What what would be the, the goal? Like, are you cashing in with huge, like, bets that way? Yeah. Are you just... Do, do you think that... It would be such a good feel-good moment for Fedor to beat a fat Rampage Jackson in Japan that you're willing to risk the integrity of, like, your promotion and everything. Who would fix it and why is yeah. the question. Yeah. You don't need, like, when you get Rampage out there looking like he is barely prepared at all, probably hasn't done a whole lot of hard sparring rounds or hard training at all by the look of him when he gets in there, maybe it's not a surprise that he gets clipped once and decides he doesn't want to be there anymore. That's probably as good a segue as any to this question from Mike Martinez that says, where does, quote, going for his third plate at Golden Corral, end quote, bod Rampage, rank for you both on the sad MMA things power rankings? Yeah, the third plate at Golden Corral is when it starts to get weird. Like well, you've already, you've gone through the prime rib. You've yeah. already done that. You've done, you've done some shrimp, some stuff like that. Third plate is when you start just like really mixing it up where you're just like. First plate, more of a fact-finding mission. Yeah. You head up there. Uh, cast a wide net and mm-hmm. see what you like, see what's good today. Second plate, you go up with a clear plan. Second plate is where business gets done. Third plate is just, you know what, I already hate myself. And uh, what if I put nacho cheese sauce on these fish sticks? What then? Third plate is where you're mortgaging the rest of your day. Yeah. How are you going to think, let's say this is it for Quentin Rampage Jackson, which some people have... Suggested that it should be. I don't know that it will be. Although, like we said before, the guy's not keeping all that busy of a schedule. If this is the last time we see Rampage out there and this is the end of his MMA career, how would you think of him? You know, I think Rampage, when he was in shape and motivated, at least for him, and doing some stuff, was surprisingly good. Yeah. Like, he... But it, I guess you can't just think about that rampage because at times he's been just so frustrating. Like, because Rampage had pretty good defensive wrestling 
what he yeah. wanted to do. He, he had punching power. He was a tough guy. And yet there were times where he would just show up and you'd be like, man, did, did you care about this one at all? What was your plan for this one? And, I mean, you see it here. Like, you, you got to have all those rampages. you got to find a way to have them all coexist in your mind if you're trying to come up with what his legacy is. Yeah. He's almost like the quintessential prize fighter in a way for me. Just sort of like, you know, clearly very skilled. Uh, clearly had a lot of the physical tools that it takes to, to uh, succeed. Became the UFC light heavyweight champion. So, in terms of legacy, you know, he, he did some significant things. Uh, had... A great rivalry and pride with Vanderlei Silva obviously had some of the, you know, some very, very memorable fights over there. But at the same time, like, I don't know that he ever made any bones about the fact that he was here for the money. Yeah. And like, that's kind of refreshingly honest in some ways. Like most fighters are here from the, for the money. Practically all of them, in fact, are probably here for the money. You could make the argument that you should be here for the money, that if it's not the money you're here for, uh, you should you might want to have a long conversation with yourself. But at the same time, like in the career of Rampage Jackson, it seems like that played out in ways that were in some sometimes positive and sometimes not so positive for him. And I think like in this fight against Fedor Emelianenko, you see a situation where it seemed like uh, from the outside looking in, it appeared that he showed up to get the paycheck for this thing to make some money. Maybe he, he needed some money because he hasn't fought in 14 months and yet didn't seem like he had prepared all that uh, thoroughly for this bout. And I think that that's part of the Rampage legacy, that he just sort of, you know, sometimes was very good and sometimes seemed somewhat, you know, less than motivated, less than fully motivated, I guess you could say. But he was also like a borderline crossover star for a while, right? Yeah. Like, uh, he was clearly like one of the more popular early personalities in MMA and got the opportunity to be in that A-Team movie and made a couple of uh, smaller budget films around that same time. Thought he was going to have a real big time acting career and that would let him walk away from MMA. Yeah. Which seemed like what he wanted. Yeah. But then you're in acting for a little while and you decide maybe you don't like it there anymore. I mean, Rampage is definitely one of those guys and MMA has a lot of them where anywhere he was, if he was there for very long... You know, long enough for the grass to grow under his feet, yeah. he would get dissatisfied with it. And then would start to think about somewhere else was really where he wanted to be. And that happened to him over and over again, not just with different jobs and industries, different promotions. Wherever he spent any time, he began to get upset about it. The other thing I think, like Rampage beat a lot of people where he was just physically better than them. Like bigger than them, stronger than them. Uh, and, you know, in the first five minutes of a fight... A scary dude. When Rampage was up against somebody who was kind of physically his equal, and they really pushed him, I don't know if he ha you have that many fights where you can look at him and be like, Rampage gutted that one out and won it. Yeah, that that might be a valid criticism. All right, next question this week comes to us from Ollie Brown, who writes, As I watched Michael Chandler make quick work of Sydney Outlaw from Tokyo, I had a random thought. Heading into 2014, I basically held Michael Chandler and Eddie Alvarez on very similar terms as fighters. However, since Alvarez's Bellator departure, their careers have diverged widely. As we head into the new decade, which fighter has fared better? All right, let's talk first about Michael Chandler, who obviously gets Sydney Outlaw here in the co-main event of the Bellator uh, Japan show. Yeah, uh, a replacement opponent. And he was supposed to be Benson Henderson. He pulled out. Not too long ago, uh, early December, and Sydney Outlaw gets gets put into this fight. So 
you know, n- not the opponent we thought we were going to get from Michael Chandler and an opponent that, that doesn't have the highest profile, although he's got a few fights in Bellator. Uh, and again, in the same way that Fedor Emelianenko looked really good against Quentin Jackson, like Michael Chandler looked outstanding against Sydney Outlaw, at least for, you know, two minutes and 59 seconds, which is how long it took for him to win via first round KO in what was a 165 pound catchweight fight. Uh, what do you think about how Michael Chandler has fared since his meeting with Eddie Alvarez, 2013-2014, they had those uh, titanic battles, first one in 2011, second one in late 2013. Chandler lost two fights in a row to Will Brooks in 2014, and obviously uh, Eddie Alvarez departed for the UFC, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, He's lost two fights since then. Uh, he's won, it looks like, eight fights, so he's eight and two since then. Right, but one of those fights that he lost was the, the Brent Premis fight right. where basically... He suffered an injury. His his leg goes out on him afterwards, and then they, they yanked the stool out from under him in the corner. Remember that one? Yeah. Insult to injury, in, literally. Indeed. Uh, but Michael Chandler, like, a very, very good lightweight, and, uh, you know, one of the, the class of Bellator, I guess you would say. And also, I think one of the things that is interesting about trying to compare those two guys' arcs, especially since then, is how Eddie Alvarez saw that moment as, okay, here's your opportunity. You're a free agent now, and you're, you're kind of hot. You're, at a, you're a sought-after free agent right now. And now's the time to really leverage that into something big. A, you know, a big contract offer from the UFC, trying to get Bellator to match. Remember, there was going to be that whole contract battle where if Bellator could feasibly say that they are matching a contract from the UFC when they don't have the same pay-per-view model. And he really took that as like, okay, I'm going to use this moment that I'm having as a springboard to get out of here and onto something that I think is better. And Michael Chandler instead stayed put in Bellator and was like, in Bellator, I'm their guy. Yeah. I am the guy. I'm the guy in the Dave and Buster's commercial, goddammit. And I'm going to work with that. I'm going to ride that wave as far as it goes. And... In retrospect, I think as far as a career decision, Michael Chandler made the better decision. Because if you are Bellator's guy, and Bellator, much like kind of Strike Force, they have the same approach sometimes to matchmaking where when they have you as their guy, they recognize that there is a they have a vested interest in seeing you succeed over the long term. Yeah. And whereas if you go to the UFC after being a Bellator champion, they have a vested interest in getting your ass beat right away yeah. to try to make the point. Like, see, Bellator does not have as good of fighters as we do. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think when you look back on it, again, we have the benefit of hindsight. I can understand like, why my, maybe Michael Chandler's choice was the better choice. And he's had a pretty good run since then. Yeah. Uh, and I think you make a good point about Bellator and... You know, we don't. I don't necessarily want to sing Bellator's praises as like a perfect organization or, uh, you know, a a real bright light in combat sports or anything like that. Because I think you know they're as pragmatic a company as anybody else. Uh, but at the same time, I think that you're right that there's a somewhat different attitude over there. Like to the UFC, it is clear at this point that everyone is interchangeable, yeah, pretty much, and everyone is expendable with the possible exception of a couple of people at the very top of the pyramid. And even those people are not make-or-break talents. You know what I mean? Like, even if Conor McGregor, the biggest 
draw and star in the UFC at this moment, the biggest draw in the history of the company, never fought again. Would it really matter all that much to the UFC? No, the like, machine keeps rolling on. They might take a very short-term pay-per-view hit, but I think we can all agree that the UFC would be fine. And I think that their attitude, consciously or unconsciously over the years, has been that they're, that the brand is bigger than the fighters and that everyone is kind of interchangeable. And it doesn't totally seem to be that way over in Bellator. And some well, of that, it can't be that. They don't have that luxury. They don't have the brand. And I also think that it has a lot to do at this point with Scott Coker's general attitude about fighting and general attitude about martial arts. He seemed, you know, he's a, a lifelong traditional martial artist himself. When I talk to him, it seems like he just really does love and respect the martial arts. And I think views the people who do the martial arts, especially MMA fighters at the highest level as, as stars, as people who deserve to be treated as well as you can treat them. And so I think Bellator for a couple of those different reasons has a slightly more nurturing attitude i mean look we'll talk about michael page a little bit more in a minute but like uh you know you have to look pretty far and wide to find people that the ufc gives that treatment to right well if you look at what happened with eddie alvarez when he went to the ufc off of that michael chandler win and uh, we should say eddie alvarez had almost 30 fights by the time he left uh, Bellator for the UFC. A lot of miles so, on the odometer. While he and Chandler are somewhat of comparable age, I think he's like two years older than Michael Chandler maybe, a lot more experience, a lot more wear and tear already in the career of Eddie Alvarez before he jumped ship to the UFC. They matched him right away with Donald Cerrone, who yeah. looked way bigger than him in that fight and beat him via decision. Wasn't really super close. He came in his next two against Gilbert Melendez and Anthony Pettis and fought very... A very uh, pragmatic style. Of, like He knew he needed to win those fights. And they weren't super exciting fights necessarily. But he was going to go in there and use wrestling when he could. And shut down the other guy's offense. And uh, won two fights in a row. Then has the big one where he takes the title off of Rafael Dos Anjos. Which was significant at the time. Huge. It was huge. Catching him in the first round. I don't think a lot of us saw that coming. Because it looked RDA at the time was looking like he was just running through people. Yeah. And then he parlays that into this big fight with Conor McGregor uh, and then fights kind of exactly the wrong style against Conor McGregor and really helps McGregor look awesome. I mean, McGregor fought a good fight himself there, but the way Alvarez went at him was like, if you were Conor McGregor's coaches, that was the best you could hope for, the best possible approach from your opponent. Uh, And then after that, you know, it seems like he's into just tough guy for the hell of it fights where... Uh, he was supposed to fight, or he had that fight with uh, Dustin Poirier that ends in a no contest, even though it's a blatantly illegal knee. Then he and Justin Gaethje trying to take each other's heads off, he wins that one. And then the rematch with Dustin Poirier, he loses that one. And then he's off into one championship where he has to fight Tim Nasty. Yeah. You know how that went. Not great. Not great. I mean, you're right that we do have like the significant benefit of hindsight, and it does kind of seem like Michael Chandler made the better long-term choice by staying in Bellator. But at the same time, like, Eddie Alvarez did go win the UFC title. Yeah. Like, he had some success. He fought these hitters, though. I mean, if, that's, if that was the goal, if you were like, hey, I want to test myself against the best in the world, even after all these fights, then I guess that was the thing to do. But it, that's a tough road. Yeah, indeed. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Ray Washington Taylor Jr. Okay. Who I assume is someone famous. Uh, He writes, after Michael Page's win this weekend, there seemed to be a lot of talk about the lack of serious opponents he's faced and that Bellator is inflating his stock by matching him against quote-unquote cans. Is MVP as good as Bellator says he is, or is Scott Coker selling us wolf tickets? 
Michael good, Page gets... Good to hear from the big boss man. Okay. Ray Washington Trailer Jr. Okay. Uh, he... So Michael Page defeats Shin's, Shinsho Anzai at this uh, Bellator Japan event. Right at the beginning of the second round, Anzai was pretty much done headed into his corner. It seemed like uh, Michael Page out there clowning him, blasting him with punches, flying knees, uh, really enjoyed a significant height and reach advantage in this fight. Gets his third win in a row since that loss to Douglas Lima at Bellator 221 earlier this year. Seemed like that uh, first loss of Michael Page's career, which he suffered in May, uh, either lit a fire under him or made him feel like, I need to get this taste out of my mouth. It's because he goes out and uh, he fought five times this year. Right, Some of but, that because he was in the welterweight Grand Prix. But like loses to Douglas Lima in May, comes back, fights September, November, December. Gets three straight wins, uh, all of them overseas and all of them over opponents that you could say uh, were not sent in there to beat Michael Page. All of them were can crushing. That's what he was doing. Yeah, and like uh, Shinsho Enzai is, is, he's probably the most legitimate guy of that group, although Richard Keeley from Ireland is a guy who's, uh, you know, still a little bit un- untested, kind of thrown into the deep water right away there against Michael Page and could be a guy that, that goes on to have a successful career. Anzai is the former uh, Pancrase middleweight champ. He came into this fight 11-3. and three. Uh, You know, he's been fighting in Japan since 2009, so... But everybody knew what we were doing. Right, yeah, yeah. You just, I mean, the, the optics on this thing kind of told the story when all you have to do is see the two guys out there and Michael Page appears to be a giant compared to his opponent and is just out there uh, kind of playing games with the guy. At least the way it looks right now is that you brought Michael Page up. He was a lot of fun to watch, doing all kinds of fun stuff. You went ahead and put him in the tournament because how do you not put him in the tournament? And... He and Paul Daly have this rivalry thing, so they're going to go ahead and do that. That fight ended up being like the exact opposite of the kind of fun that we were hoping for. But he wins it. Then he faces by far the best opponent he has ever faced in Douglas Lima, who looks fantastic in putting him away. Uh, but then you decide, like, okay, enough of that. Let's go right back to matching him up where he's, like, every fight he's, like, an 8-to-1 favorite. Yeah. And he's just going to go out there and smash somebody and everybody has a good time. And let's, I guess, just see how long we can possibly do that until we have to get serious again. Yeah, and I, I think that the, like, the real philosophical question underneath all this stuff is, like, what do you want out of Michael Page from your viewing experience? Like, do you want to see Michael Page do dance moves? And flow, throw flying knees and win by uh, fantastic knockouts. This this one here against uh, Anzai was a little bit anticlimactic by the time it finally happened. But, like, do you want Michael Page to be able to go out there and be Michael Page? Or do you want to see Michael Page tested against the best competition that Bellator can find him? Because if it's the second thing, he might not be able to be the version of Michael Page that everyone finds fascinating. Right, but if you can only pull off awesome slam dunks if we lower the rim to eight feet, yeah, then I'm not that impressed. Like the whole thing is that you should be able to do this against real people. Like if you can't, then you can't actually do it. You can only do it when we send somebody in there as a sacrificial lamb. So it doesn't mean anything to me. I, I get that at a certain point, you know, you're building the guy up and everything, but at this point, what, he's like seventeen and one? What are you waiting for? He's had thirteen fights in Bellator, so I don't know that I don't know that there could be an ongoing growth period, right? Like it seems like Michael Page is up to speed at this yeah. point. 
I don't, yeah, I, that's what I'm, I'm just like, if, if you're plotting out what does 2020 look like for Michael Page and you're like, let's just get more people in here who will stand still while he does stuff to them. That, that's, we've seen it. Yeah. You, you got to find something else for us to do. Also, uh, it is going to shock you to learn the cause of death of the big boss man. Heart failure? Heart attack. Yeah. He was 41. Shocking. Shame, same age that I am now. How you feeling? How's the, uh, how's the old ticker? Just reminded me of my own mortality. Okay. I feel like you and the big boss man have followed different paths in some ways. Yeah. Some ways. Wait till I hit the road, though. Okay. Yeah. I'm on that road lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Might not come back. This could be your last chance to come see me, you guys, when I'm in, in these three cities later this month. That This Next is how month. you've chosen to work up attendance? <laughs> Chad Dennis could die at I any point. I could die at any point. You better come see me while you can. Juan Pablo writes... The Bellator card was enjoyable to watch, and while seeing finishes is always exciting, we tune in to watch fights, not just squash matches. Does Bellator's latch, lack of matching up equally talented fighter hurt fighters hurt them in the long run? So a little bit of what we just talked about with Michael Page. Like, I don't know that you can make that charge from start to finish in Bellator 237. Like, clearly Michael Page was matched up with uh, Shinsho Anzai so he could go out there and beat him. But at the same time, like, uh, we ne- we didn't totally know which version of Rampage Jackson was going to show up. Like, if you told me you were 100% confident that Fedor Emelianenko was going to beat Rampage Jackson headed into this fight, I would have called you a damn liar because we've seen Fedor Emelianenko be subject to getting knocked out as well. Uh, and then, you know, it was supposed to be Michael Chandler versus Benson Henderson, which would have been a much more competitive matchup. So, like, you got uh, five stoppages on a six-fight main card. Lorenz Larkin and Keita Nakamura went the distance, the only card on the Bell- or the only fight on the Bellator 237 main card uh, to, go the, to go the distance. But other than that, like, I don't know if you would look at these fights, aside from the Michael Page fight, and be like, these were all mismatches. Oh, first of all, good to hear from Juan Pablo, who I can only assume is the same Juan Pablo who was a professional soccer player who then went on The Bachelor. Okay. And who, what, the way I found him is one of the headlines that says Juan Pablo is the worst bachelor in history. Okay. That's an interesting claim to fame. Um, I, do you remember when Strike Force used to do this at times? And it, yeah. it's kind of the same thing. It's Scott Coker and Rich Chow, uh, Rich Chow, the Bellator matchmaker who was the Strike Force matchmaker. And this was a thing that sometimes Strike Force would do where, it was a way to deliver some excitement and to get the crowd into it and show like, okay, we got some great finishes. We'll get some highlights out of it and everything. It's also like when we were talking earlier about fixes in combat sports, this is one reason why fixes are not more common probably is because you don't need to. You can fix the fight in a way with matchmaking. And when you have a whole bunch of really good fighters, it's tough because, as we said, in MMA, small gloves, lots of different stuff can happen. You can't necessarily plan on it. But in a lot of ways, if you've got some guy who is like a mid-level middleweight who you want to make him look like he's really an upper-tier middleweight, get some other middleweight who really just plays right into his strengths and is not ready for that level of experience. And it's not like they're the only ones who do it. When Anderson Silva fought Chris Lieben, uh, showing up in the UFC, that's what they were doing. Yeah. They knew exactly what they were doing there. Yeah. But that is just a, that is one approach to running a combat sports organization. The problem is if you get a little too fond of it. And if you get so fond of it that everybody comes to just 
expect that that's what you're doing because then it doesn't impress anybody. Yeah. And I agree with all of that. But I will also say that maybe I'm going to give Bellator a little bit of a pass just because they are not the UFC. And they have fewer options. They have fewer options. They have a smaller roster. They, in some ways, have to do things differently than the UFC. I mean, Bellator in the Bjorn Rebney era tried to be the toughest organization in sports. They tried to be tournament-based. They tried to like have all of these really uh, competitive matchups between equally uh, matched fighters, and it didn't go anywhere. It didn't really scratch the surface. Nobody cared all that much. I think that they are better off under Scott Coker now, although always they're going to be fighting an uphill battle against the most dominant brand in the sport. Uh, but at the same time, like, I don't know, man. If they were the, the number one MMA promotion in the world, I might uh, ask for a different approach if they had the kind of resources and manpower like the sheer depth of roster that the UFC has, I would probably ask for a different approach. And sometimes it does get on my nerves to see what Bellator does with uh, some of its matchmaking. But at the same time, like I don't necessarily need it to be a carbon copy of the UFC. It can it can give us a slightly different flavor, and uh, I will be relatively happy with it. Also, this part of the question: What is your opinion of the Mike Goldberg and Big John McCarthy commentating booth? Jimmy Smith is missed. I'd agree with that. Jimmy Smith miss Jimmy is Smith. missed. It's a, it's uh, surprising, almost unthinkable to me that Jimmy Smith is just still sort of on the sidelines right now, like uh, doing very his good. doing his own thing out there, but like doesn't have a major MMA color commentary gig. And I don't even know why the UFC let the guy go. Like, it seemed like the UFC wanted that color commentary spot open for current and former fighters which is one approach yes and but then like another thing that kind of mystifies me about it is that you you have joe rogan like you you're kind of you have a, a you have a turn stable of fighters right that all kind of take turns in the broadcast booth and it's fine most of them are very good but you have joe rogan as your sort of like non mma fighter color commentator but joe rogan now literally for years has sort of been making noise about how he doesn't know how much longer he's in the game and so, but still in the game. still in the game, sure. But like to 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 maybe the UFC thinks he can go get Jimmy Smith whenever it wants to, and maybe that's right. But at the same time, like I don't understand just like not having the guy under under contract when you do as many fights as you do, and we don't know what Joe Rogan's future is. And I think that oftentimes it's handy to have someone who's like not a current MMA fighter out there dispensing commentary, uh, but. Yeah, he is missed. As far as the Bellator broadcast booth is concerned, we know where Mike Goldberg is at yep. and have known for years. So you tune in and you get Mike Goldberg. That's what you get. He's not going to show up and suddenly be Howard Cosell. No, he's, he's just, not. He's Mike Goldberg. Uh, Big John McCarthy seems to really drive people crazy. And I don't feel as negative about him as a lot of people do. Like, mostly I think he's fine as a color commentator. But... uh you know what it is? It's because they got used to Big John McCarthy as like this authoritative voice yeah. on the sport. Yeah. Like he was like the, one of the first refs and he was important and instrumental in kind of trying to shape the rules and things like that. And this, then to see him be kind of like a company man for Bellator and be like their commentator and have to do the things that all MMA commentators end up doing. John Anik has talked about it, having to go from working for ESPN to working like for the UFC as their commentator. 
And I think it's more jarring for people when they see it from Big John McCarthy because they were like, we thought of you as the conscience of the sport. Like, yeah. you know, I think that that's the thing that they're reacting to more than anything. But, you know, I watched that Bellator the other night from Hawaii where they had uh, Moro Ronaldo on the mic. And it's just like, man, I miss Moro Ronaldo, having Moro, Moro around a little bit and then injecting some fun into the broadcast, which sometimes in some of those Bellator cards, when there's a bunch of like local Hawaiian dudes you never heard of filling out the uh, the undercard, you need that. Yeah. Next question from David Lotteray this week. So, in your humble opinion, is Maximilian still the the featherweight goat, or does it revert back to Aldo, or is it Volkanovski the goat now? We need to jump to conclusions. Please help. <laughs> I think leg kick Aldo was always the goat, but I do love Maximilian and want happy things for him. I talked about this a little bit on one of our recent shows. I don't remember which one it was, but I am game for all of this greatest of all time discussion, which just constantly permeates mixed martial arts. But at the same time, I think it's kind of silly because the sport is so young to date that you can have three different greatest of all times, it seems, in the course of like three different weeks. Yeah. Like one day you could be like, Oh, maybe Jose Aldo is the greatest featherweight of all time. And then the next week be like, oh, actually, it's Max Holloway. And then the instant Max Holloway loses to Alexander Volkanovsky, we are out here retroactively saying, well, now Alexander Volkanovsky is the greatest 145-pound men's MMA fighter of all time. Well, let's just wait a few decades and then we can be like, you know what? It was Volkanovsky. But see, that's the thing is that the more time goes by and the more evidence each fighter puts out, the more you can twist it to be whatever you want it to mm-hmm. be. Especially like Jose Aldo. If Jose Aldo really does go through a resurgence as a bantamweight, then people might just think of like, he had a rough period there as a featherweight. And honestly, never should have been a featherweight. Should have been a bantamweight all along. No, oh, See, yeah, now you're making a strong case. But the same thing, like you go back and you look at Jose Aldo's run as featherweight champion, right? Like from the WEC to the UFC and where he's just like a long string of years there where he's not losing to anybody. And then especially when he's fighting like all title fights where it's like, you know, beats Cub Swanson, Mike Brown, Uriah Faber, Manny Gamburian, Mark Homnick, Kenny Florian, Chad Mendes, Frank Edgar, Chan Sung Jung, Ricardo Lamas, Chad Mendes, all guys you heard of. Yeah, that's actually a pretty impressive run considering uh, what the depth of talent was like at that weight both like in the later stages of the WEC and the early stages of the UFC. And then you go back and you look at like Max Holloway and you're like, okay, well he does have the head to head win over Jose Aldo there where, and like both fights where he, you could do that fight 10 more times and he's not going to lose a single one of them. Like yeah. he, 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 and you can't also really tell me that it's because Jose Aldo just was so far past his prime by that point. Max Holloway was just better than him and it really had the answer to Jose Aldo's style. Yeah, but we've talked about before that like one-on-one wins and losses, head-to-head wins and losses is not necessarily the deal breaker in this sport that it could be in some other sports. Yeah, I guess just like you can look at somebody like Max Holloway who his run was more recent in our minds and the people he beat during it they seem fresher in our minds, too. Like, oh, he'd be Brian Ortega, he'd be Josie Helder twice, beat, beat Anthony Pettis, Ricardo Lamas, Jeremy Stevens, uh, Charles Oliveira, beat Frankie Edgar. Like, all these people where you were kind of looking at them and going like, okay, yeah, those are, those all feel like the guys 
if not of this moment, then of very recent moments. Yeah. A lot of people around here remember Mark Hominick these days. Remember the time when it was like Mark Hominick was, yeah, definitely uh, the guy you'd pick as the top contender for the title. So Josie Aldo's legacy suffers a little bit from that. But, yeah, I, I agree that it is ultimately kind of silly trying to pick one. In, in a way, the farther we get from Jose Aldo's, uh, I think the, I think in the future of MMA, everybody, and especially in these weight classes, everybody's so good, you'll see fewer and fewer just long, uninterrupted runs like that. Yeah. And so then those start to look better in retrospect. But then it's also like, man, would Babe Ruth even touch the ball against some of the, today's pitchers? Maybe not. Like, it's the same problem. Did you just drop a future of fighting on us there mid-conversation? Well, we're living in the future of fighting. Didn't you remember? Is it's, it? it's the little like UFC apex. Well, yeah. When we, when we look back on the career of Jose Aldo, will, be, will we be doing it from the cheap seats at the Apex Arena? Are there cheap seats at the Apex Arena? I don't know anything about the Apex Arena. Next question this week from Patrick Bateman, main character of American Psycho. Okay. Tyron Woodley accepted a fight with Leon Edwards, but is now having second thoughts after Leon insulted his rap career. Is this true? Is that true? Come you on. Know, find me the answer. Okay. Are you interested in this fight for a possible number one contender bout? Uh, I feel like... Why would him insulting your rap career make you want to fight him less? Maybe Tyron Woodley is like, thinks he's given Leon Edwards a, uh, a huge opportunity. You know, the whole... Wow, this, this seems to be true. Uh your single was called I'll Beat Your Ass. Yeah, it was. How are you going to not beat his ass after that? I don't know. That's the, seems... the chorus. The hook, Chad, was I'll Beat Your Ass. Yeah, no, I remember. Going to, are you going to iTunes for this? I'm nervous when I see you. We're talking about Tyron Woodley's rap career, and I see you going to iTunes. I mean, we'll see. We'll see I, what happens. I got it. I got it in my library. Yeah, you bought it, right? I did. Well, I, I spent that money. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago that it seemed like just through process of elimination and the kind of like how stuff happens in this sport, that it seemed like a good bet that Tyron Woodley was going to end up coming back and taking a Leon Edwards fight, maybe settling for a Leon Edwards fight. But uh, I mean, I think it's a good, it's a great fight just in terms of two really, really good welterweights are going to fight each other. And Leon Edwards got to fight somebody. He's so good. He's got to fight somebody. And it uh, doesn't seem like anybody involved in the current title picture is going to be willing to take the risk necessary to fight him. So uh, might as well be Tyron Woodley. Uh, it seems like they went at it that this is on Twitter or Instagram or something. Yeah. Wow. Best welterweight in the world. Maybe not so much anymore. See, there's the drop. Yeah. I'll beat your ass unless you say something I don't like. And then I'll, I'll get my feelings hurt and I won't do it. <sighs> gotta pause that before we... No, we don't want to get sued by Tyron Wooden. Yeah. Like, we gotta keep it to fair use. Uh, fair use doctrine. It seems like it stems from Leon Edwards commenting, at least you have the rapping career to fall back on after March laughing crying emoji hashtag strap season hashtag 2020 to which tyron woodley responds shut your bitch ass up before i don't sign to fight your bum ass nobody knows you nobody cares you a bitch and ate a three-piece and that's your biggest claim to fame 
Then there's several, there's three, in fact, chicken drumstick okay. emojis, yeah. and then the soda. He even included the soda. Nice. So that is actually good use emoji, use work, emoji work by Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley. Uh, and then, like, at Leon Edwards, quit clout chasing and trying to add your 50,000 followers. You're embarrassing. Stop trying to talk shit. You're garbage at it, just like your bum-ass career. I've made more money in music than you've made in your entire career. Laugh at that, you little bitch. Wow. That's tough talk. <laughs> Come on. Stop it. I'm actually, I, I don't even care about fair use anymore. You're just making me mad. Next but, question is, we, <laughs> what, go ahead. What else you want to say? What else you got for Tyron Woodley? It's a strange threat to make. Like, shut up before I don't sign to fight you. Well, yeah. you were in the few profession where you can actually, if you want to, if you're mad at him because he's talking, you don't like what he's saying, you can beat his ass and get paid for it. I mean, clearly Tyron Woodley sees it as a, a favor. He's doing Leon Edwards a favor by signing to fight him. I, okay. Next question this week comes from Still My Boy. Okay. Yeah, I like it. Chris Weidman. No way. Who would have thought this would be a Chris Weidman question? Recently said in an interview, I've, I haven't had a tune-up fight in my career. My last 11 or 12 guys are top five in the world. Uh, but that he is still open to facing Luke Rockhold. Who would you have him face next? Does a Luke fight interest you or make sense? I mean, at this point, one of the major questions there might have to be what Luke Rockhold is up to. Yeah, he doesn't. Luke Rockhold really wants to fight, right? He doesn't seem like he's all that interested in in the mixed martial arts at this point. So maybe another fight with Chris Weidman would would uh, interest him. But right now, it seems like he's more interested in in uh, probably racing yachts. I mean, when I imagine what Luke Rockhold is up to, I imagine him out at a regatta of some kind, uh, boat racing. First of all, what do you make of Chris Weidman's claim that he's never had a, a that he's just fought all tough fights? There's, there's something to it, especially yeah, in the I last mean, well, recently, yeah. Well, I mean, when he, first of all, he fought Uriah Hall in like Ring of Combat in like Atlantic City back when nobody really knew who either one of them were. Yeah. But, you know, they're both going to end up being guys who matter. Um, but then came into the UFC, fought Alessio Sakara. You remember your boy Legionarius? Yeah, I remember the then. tattoos. Uh-huh. Some of the best tattoo work we've ever seen. Then fought Jesse Bongfelt. Jesse Water Bongfelt. Uh-huh. That's his actual nickname. See what he did there. Uh, and then Tom Lawler. And then it really gets serious. I think he took that Demian Maya fight on short notice uh, in Chicago for one of the first UFC on Fox events. And then it's... You know, Mark Munoz, Anderson Silva twice, Leodo Machida, Butor Belfort, Luke Rockhold, Yuel Romero, Gegard Mousasi, Kelvin Gastelum, Jacare Souza, Dominic Reyes. I mean, there's not a tune-up fight there in the in the in the recent history. Well, and like even the first couple, the first three, I guess you could say, UFC fights, they weren't tune-up fights for the time because nobody, there weren't like people really knew what to expect from Chris Weidman yet. It was like, let's match him up with these other people who seem around the same level. Yeah. And he ran through most of them. And then once he became, like that Mark Munoz fight was the one where he, because he looked really great, hit him, split him open with that elbow, finished him off, and everybody was like, well, okay, this guy, this guy really matters. And then from then on, it has been nothing but tough fights for Chris Weidman. Yeah, I remember being at the uh, Weidman-Tom Lawler fight. And UFC 139, San if, Jose. If I am, if I remember correctly, Weidman choked him out, right? Like, uh, stopped him. And yeah, it was the Shogun Hendo card. We were both at that one. Yeah. I totally forgot. I remember watching that fight and thinking that oh, Chris, yeah. Yeah, Chris Weidman was going to be a problem. Because he was, at that time, taking people down kind of like Chael Sonnen style, where you don't really even have to set up your takedowns. 
You just go out there and shoot a double and you get it and put the guy on his on his back. But the difference with Chris Weidman was that he was stopping people. Like, Sonnen has always had some of the best, best MMA takedowns in the sport. Like, he goes out there, doesn't have to do a lot of uh, d- disguising what he's trying to do, and he can still take you down, or at least he could during his prime. The trouble with him was that he couldn't do much to you once he got you there. Yeah. Like, he was going to grind out a decision. Chris Weidman was taking people down and finishing them. And at that point, I was like, okay, this guy's going to be... This guy's going to be a problem. And then he does get to the point where he has all those, you know, he fights every tough guy in that division, one right after another, ultimately moves up to 205, and that did not go well for him. But, I mean, I think that there's probably something to it. And I don't know if you can fight that many tough guys in a row without suffering some manner of physical uh, receipts for it. Yeah, and see, that's what I wonder, is looking at this string of fights that he's had. Like, if you start with that Demian Maia fight, which is at the very beginning of 2012, like January 2012, means you're coming up on, like, almost eight years of really difficult competition. Yeah. Like, nothing but really difficult competition. And if you told me that the human body, and even the a really good human body, like the one that Chris Weidman possesses, can take about eight years of the top-level MMA competition... Yeah, that sounds about right. And some stuff might start to happen to you. I feel like you were just a centimeter away from saying that Chris Weidman is like a Diaz brother with a beautiful fucking beautiful body. Beautiful fucking body. Yeah. Diaz brother and a beautiful just, body. Just beautiful. So beautiful. Next question is we come... Oh, wait. No, I think Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman is actually kind of a dope idea. We said it before. Like, it's... it's if you're If you're looking around for, like, credible, borderline relevant fights for both of those guys right now, I mean, that's... Well, and if you're, if you're telling Luke Rockhold, like, hey, you probably don't have to fight. You don't want to risk your good looks. Uh, you don't want to get off the regatta that yeah. uh, you're on right now. Like, you get business to take care of there. But if you were if you were to consider untying the sweater that's just draped over your shoulders and getting back in the cage, here's one where you would look at it and be like, oh, I could win that fight and get a payday and, and feel pretty good about it. Yeah. I imagine Luke Rockhold swinging in on a rope. Like... We're racing boats. Maybe it gets to the... We're heading into the final stretch. We're neck and neck. Here comes suddenly Luke Rockhold comes swooping in on a rope. Okay. And like lands on the deck of your ship. He makes the difference. He starts doing that where they turn the thing. What are they doing on the boat when they are when they do this? They got uh-huh. the two cranks. Yeah. You got to do that. You got to do the cranks. Yeah. Tacking. He's tacking. I don't know what that is. Okay. I don't know anything about boats. I'm from fucking Montana. I, I, you know, when I showed up here today, no way did I think... We're going to end up trying to blunder our way through boating terminology. It's one of the beauties of the Co-Main Event podcast. You never know where you're going. Yeah, I guess so. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, My previous job was at a large governmental institution, and a few of us would play a game called Did You Hear? We would come up with stupid things, like staff with perfect attendance were getting TVs at the end of the year, just to see what people would fall for and how long before someone came back to us to tell us, hey, did you hear about the TVs? Okay, so wait, so what he's saying is we would distribute lies and misinformation as Rumors. gossip yeah. and, and see which of it took hold enough to then come back around to us. Because that's a fun game. Why do I bring this up? Well, did you hear that Donald Cerrone is going to take a dive in his bout against Conor McGregor? Because that was circulating on the MMA interweb sites. What are your thoughts on this? And can we start a better did you hear for 2020? Again, 
Don't you book this fight because you feel like you don't have to pay anybody to take a dive? You feel like it's advantageous to Conor McGregor? As yeah. advantageous as you can get while still right. getting a name that matters? If your two choices are Donald Cerrone and Justin Gaethje, then Donald Cerrone is the fight that Conor McGregor has the larger percentage chance of winning. Also, this reminds me of... I remember doing also, a story... Also, if you're in the UFC and, you, and Conor, Conor McGregor can't beat Donald Cerrone, what the fuck are you going to do with him? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, See what Shinzo Anza is up to? I... I was talk- so I was doing a story on Pride, and I was talking to old Pride guys about the fixes and the, that kind of undercurrent that was always whispered about with Pride. And I remember I talked to both Boss Rudin and Henzo Gracie about it, and Henzo was like, I think Pride knew who they could ask to do that and who they couldn't. And I always took it as a mark of their respect for me or at least knowledge of who I was. That they never asked me to do anything. And Boss Rutten told a story about how when like somebody from Pride came to take him out to dinner with the big wigs, and he and he thought, uh oh, here it comes. Like they're gonna somebody's they're this is where they're gonna broach that conversation with me. And Boss Takata needs a fight. Yeah, and like I don't wanna do it, but like if I say no, will that mean like we're never gonna talk about anything ever again? Like I'll be dead to them. Like what's the situation there? And he said that they just went out and had a nice dinner and it didn't come up. But he was really wondering about it. like, And also kind of asking himself the same question. Like, am I, to them, a guy you could ask to do this? Yeah. It makes you want, like, because if you tell me that there are people on the UFC roster who the UFC could come to and be like, you know, Donald Trump style, we'd like you to do us a favor. I, I'm not going to say that there aren't those guys out there. Yeah. But I don't think Donald Cerrone's one of them. I think and he I don't think the UFC would know that you don't that you can't ask Donald. You can ask Donald Cerrone to do a lot of shit. A lot of shit that would be a bad idea for him. Yeah. But you can't ask him to do that. I think he would get really mad. Yeah. And Donald Cerrone is a guy that you can't even get to be indoors to answer the phone, right? Like he's not going to do anything he doesn't want to do at any time. And imagine the colossal shitstorm if Donald Cerrone is out here on the Joe Rogan podcast talking right. about how the U.S. is trying to thing. take a dive against Conor McGregor. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna be trying to orchestrate dives, you gotta be super fucking careful in 2019 slash 2020 because all it takes is Nate Diaz going to uh, Twitter or Instagram to be like, "These motherfuckers told me I tested positive. I call false on that," and suddenly you have a major shitstorm on your hands. Uh, that you have to clear up within days. Can you imagine if someone like Don Zeroni went on the internet and was like, they asked me to to take a dive against Conor McGregor? Do you remember that shit would actually probably be on Sports Center? Yeah. Do you remember when uh, uh, Seth Petrozelli knocked out Kimbo, and then afterwards there was talk about uh, when trying to arrange fights for Kimbo, we were paying people extra not to take it to the ground, stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it's like. You just let that rumor get started a little bit, and that's all it takes to for everybody to turn against you. I mean, Dana, that was Dana White's "that's fucking illegal" moment, right? Yeah, yeah. Also, I say again, if you are engineering shit for people in this sport, you got to know that that's a horse you just can't ride very far, right? Yeah. Like Conor McGregor can't go on being Conor McGregor for six more months if you don't think that he's got the stuff to beat Cowboy Cerrone. No disrespect to Cowboy Cerrone, but like, if Conor McGregor is going to keep being Conor McGregor, he's got to win Conor McGregor fights. Well, and you're right. I mean, the whole reason you choose Donald Cerrone over Justin Gaethje in this situation is 
because you're looking for a more winnable fight for Conor McGregor that still has the name value attached to it. I also, it's one of those moments where I wonder what non-MMA fans think of this sport because I look up uh, at a TV uh, in a in a tavern, see it set to ESPN, and there's a big ad for it, and it just says McGregor versus Cowboy. Mm-hmm. And there's one guy where you're like, okay, if I've been paying attention to media at all, I know who Conor McGregor is. He's been kind of been around. And even if I don't, I can probably guess which one of these guys is Cowboy because he's wearing a goddamn Cowboy hat. He's wearing a, a big gimmick. black Cowboy hat. It's a good gimmick. And we're just calling him Cowboy. All right. Next you would think this shit is pro wrestling. Next question from Brian Van Degel. Degel? Okay. I thought you fellas might want to talk about something I've been noticing. Sponsors on the Octagon. It was always hypocritical for the UFC to implement a uniform and still have multiple sponsors on both the canvas, corner covers, and the top of the cage. But it seems like each event I watch, the UFC has sold a new piece of canvas and even the top of the judges' table. There have been a few events now where the judges' table was covered with an ad for Manscaped.com, which, correct me if I'm wrong, has to count as a wash with dude wipes. With the UFC continuing to find revenue sources while restricting the fighters' earning options, my question is this. What do you think of the next complete slap in the face to the fighters the UFC will deliver next? Uh, the most recent Brazil event was sponsored by Amtrak. Maybe fighters have to travel by train because the UFC has a trade for a free coach, non-assigned seat ticket, etc. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit recently, but everything that they can sell is going to get sold. The judges table, that is a, an interesting one, though. I didn't notice that. Yeah, well, I think it's, I don't know if it's actually on the judges table or like right on the the side of the octagon. Like they have yeah. that the platform that goes around the well, outside. The judges of the sit octagon. at different spots along the yeah. table, right? So I think it just says manscape.com right there. And see, that is one where when you were telling us we're cleaning up the sport, we're cleaning up the look of the sport by getting rid of sponsors, and then you still got like you were saying that we can't be out here with Condom Depot on our ass, fellas. Come on. We want to be professionals. We want to be taken seriously. So that's why you got to all put on Reebok and take away that revenue stream. By the way, it's going to say manscaped.com on the floor right next to you. Yeah. You might get taken down on the manscaped.com logo. Yeah. I mean, I guess I will just keep saying it until it becomes uh, rote that the reason WME IMG bought the UFC in the first place was that it looked at the product and it thought... Hmm, we see a lot of opportunities where we could make money here that aren't currently being utilized. And I think probably a small aspect of that was we're going to find some new quote-unquote corporate partnerships that we can exploit and uh, sell some space on the octagon. Official frozen pizza, the UFC, official uh, plant-based snack of the UFC. Official hummus of the USC. Maybe maybe what we should do here is we should play the game of did you hear. We'll start putting out there like did you hear that USC fighters are going to have to start wearing a sponsorship for Depends on their shorts and not get paid for it. And then see how long it takes to for it to like kind of take hold in the MMA Twitter sphere. Yeah. Sure. Did you hear, Chad? I heard. I just heard it now. Mm-hmm. That's it. We're up over an hour. Thanks to everybody for joining us for the Co-Main Event Podcast. What's our uh, schedule for the rest of the week? Are we Wednesday is uh, New Year's Eve? Is that Wednesday's New Year's Day? Tomorrow's okay. New Year's Eve. All right. You partying? Uh, you no. partying up? No. What are you doing, bro? Probably nothing. Just shirt off in the club. Probably be here at home. The club. Uh, one thing we do do is trick our kids into thinking that it's uh, midnight, oh, way that's earlier fun. than midnight. Yeah. Like seven o'clock, we'll run a 
a countdown for the new year. So then we can be like, all right, well, we did it. It's time for bed. <laughs> so look, uh, we parenting hard. tip for all you people out there. Yeah. Uh, we can be back Friday for the power hour, though, right? Yeah, let's do that. Nothing going on. Let's do it indeed. All right. That's it right now. We're done. We're through. We're out. If you get us in trouble over this, of all things... It doesn't feel fair right now. It feels very unfair to me. You know, one time personally. when I was living in a house in the late 90s, we started a rumor in town. My roommate and I that Steve Miller was blind. Did you hear? We just started, yeah, we just started saying, Steve, you know, he's blind. But yeah, blind as a bat. Always been blind, and eventually uh, a girl came around and told us the same rumor. Well, came up and she liked you. My friend Gordon and I tried to start a rumor that I'd seen in Conan the Barbarian, where Schwarzenegger punches a camel, and uh, like Conan is like on some kind of lotus-based drug and punches a camel. We tried to start a rumor that that was bad lived by Schwarzenegger, and he actually struck a camel without any knowledge. Yeah.